Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Here's this week's interview. Great, Congresswoman Titus, thank you so much for joining us on what is a technically a special edition of the Indie Matters podcast, um, filmed not in UNLV, but the Atomic Testing Museum, so we're a little north of where we normally record. Um, I wanted to start off with sort of a, a larger question that's been facing uh, the Democratic Party nationally kind of since the 2016 election. There's been a resurgence and in interest in the idea of socialism, democratic socialism, uh, both by the Bernie Sanders wing and in candidates like Alexandria Oscario cortez in New York tweeting Joe Crowley. Um, what is your opinion of sort of this renewed interest in, in socialism? Is this a good thing for the party to sort of move leftward in this regard? Uh, would, would you consider yourself to be a democratic socialist, either in sort of the, the Nordic model like Mr. Sanders, or, or what, what's your take on sort of this move? Well, I think anytime you bring new people into the party, <clears throat> that's a good thing. I don't know about the label democratic socialist. I've never considered myself that. I think I'm liberal, I'm progressive. I support a number of the proposals that they support, uh, including Medicare for all, uh, expanded access to universities. But uh, I, I think that they, too much is being made over the split within the party. When uh, Ocasio won, it was kind of like, oh, this is the new wave. But then you've seen people on the conservative side win primaries too. So I think we need to get back to the notion that the Democrats have always had, much different from the Republicans, that we are a big tent and we bring a lot of people in. And as a result of that, there's going to be friction and going to be disagreement. I think unity will be the key and certainly nothing unifies us like having an opponent like is in the White House right now. What specifically about the, this label and the people who are running under this label of a democratic socialist do you disagree with or find that you um, don't line up with their maybe all of their policy priorities? Well, I don't know. I think some of it's a little idealistic. They haven't really put pen to paper to think about how they're going to deliver on some of these things. And I've found over time, if you make a lot of promises, you've got to be able to deliver on them. It's not bad to be idealistic. I, young people are idealistic. I think if you get millennials engaged in the process, that will be an improvement. I don't know about any kind of specifics because there aren't a lot of specifics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because uh, even though you talk about young people uh, are, are optimists and they're maybe not as cynical as people who have been around a while, uh, 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 Congresswoman, you you are you believe in some of these things. Though. I mean, we can talk about pot legalization a little bit. That you, you would have to say that you're maybe a Pollyanna or an optimist over that. But one of the things that you mentioned that you were on and Riley mentioned this too early on is Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. And you still see that as a debate within the Democratic Party. I think I remember, uh, and Riley can correct me if I'm wrong. I remember during the, the debate uh, for, for CD4, the Democratic debate, when there were five candidates or so, you had one who was running passionately on Medicare for all, but you couldn't even get agreement on that, uh, including, I, 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 don't, I don't even think it's Stephen Horsford, who was the nominee, has, has embraced it uh, yet. That, that is a, I mean, that seems like pie in the sky to a lot of people. Do you think it is or not? Well, I think people worry that that's going to be called socialism without looking at the details of it. I'm part of the Medicare for All caucus. And and I remember I was there for the first health care debate. Uh, and 
in the House side, we had a public option as part of Obamacare. And that was, I think, a step towards single payer or Medicare for all. And I very much supported that. And that got taken out on the Senate side. And then we ended up with Obamacare, which has made great improvements, certainly in Nevada as well as nationwide. But it's, it's just kind of a mishmash of things. I said at the time that if you're going to expand Medicaid upward, so that would include more people, why don't you also expand Medicare so that you can drop the age down from 60 to 55 or something and let people buy into it. Then it becomes like a public option. People can get the coverage. It's not just a giveaway paid for by tax dollars, but people are actually putting money into it. And that would be a first step down the road. You know, they really haven't put pen to paper how much this would cost. They haven't looked at how it would fit with the way Obamacare has been unraveled. But there are some pretty good estimates that if you raise just a small health tax on employers and on individuals, what they would pay in that tax would be considerably less than what they pay annually in health care premiums. So I think you can pencil it out, but I think you've got to at least start talking about it. And every place else in the world that's civilized Western society can do it. I don't know what our problem is. I guess what I'm wondering about is this whole health care debate, which is something it seems that the Democrats really want to talk about during the midterms, especially Obamacare, which you still you, you still support and you say protect Obamacare you, and you want to perfect certain provisions of it. But it's been soundbited, right, as everything is. And, and you understand this. People don't remember in another life you were a political science professor and, and you talked about all this stuff. Medicare for all, repeal and replace. and, and But people just want, they, they want their health, they don't want to be crushed by their, 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 their doctor's bills or, or their hospital hospital bills. Is it just, is, is it, I guess I, I, I've been around, uh, uh, I, I should say for the sake of this uh, uh, recording longer than you, just so those people think that, you. right? You're welcome. <laughs> and and, and I, I guess, um, is, is that just totally uh, uh, Pollyanna to think that we're going to have any kind of reasonable debate or Democrats are just going to hit Republicans over the head with health care for the next two months while Republicans try to dance around what, what, they're, what they're going to do after the election, as I think is going on in the Senate race right now. I think that's true. Uh, several years ago, I wrote an op-ed for the paper, you may remember it, of things that the Democrats and Republicans could come together on to compromise to really fix uh, Obamacare. And some of it had to do with health, bargaining for health care costs. Some of it is uh, selling over state lines. That's not a federal problem. That's a state-by-state -state problem. But I laid out a, a series of things like that. No progress was made on any of those. The Democrats didn't have the votes to change it, nor the will to open it up, because you know yourself, you put something on the table, you're not sure where it's going to go. And Republicans just hated it so much, it was all about repeal. So there was no attempt to really fix anything. Now, under the Trump administration, they have not been able to repeal it. I've voted over 60 times on this. Uh, so they're just eating away at it bit by bit. And instead of getting better, it's getting worse. The main thing people are concerned about is pre-existing conditions. That, that scares people more than anything, if you could figure out how to always cover that. And something else that's starting to just go through the roof are just drug costs. If there, you know, something needs to be done about drug costs, but the pharmaceuticals are just so powerful that it's, it's hard to break into that. So will progress be made? Uh, 
not between now and November. Uh, I'm going to let Riley jump back in here, but I just want to wrap, wrap this part of it up by asking you just a more general question. Uh, people have been talking about dysfunction in Washington for, for several years now and, and what's going on now uh, with, with the White House and, 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 and the midterms has made it worse. Uh, I, I mean, do you, do you even still enjoy being back there? I mean, is, is there any hope that actually stuff is going to get done? I, 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 you chuckle, and you and I have known each other a long time, but I just I just wonder because when you were in the legislature, even though you were in the minority most of the time, yeah. you still were, were, and you were a fierce partisan at times, you tried to get things done. Right. Uh, is, it, is, is, there, is there no light at the end of the tunnel? Well, it's frustrating, I can tell you, and certainly I understand why my constituents are frustrated. But you have to pick your battles, John. Just for example, last week I had an amendment passed in a foreign affairs bill that says our embassies have to be uh, disability compliant. I mean, that's a little thing, but it makes a big difference in some people's lives. So you just look for successes like that. And overall, I always say I'd rather be in the battle than on the sidelines. And I guess I am an optimist because I think maybe some things are going to change this November and I may be in a position of more power to get more things done. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about that. There's a lot of um, assumptions that Democrats will take back control of the House. And while mm -hmm. you know, I don't want you to play Nostradamus here um, <laughs> for our listeners, um, what do you? What role do you see yourself playing if Democrats do take control of the House? Are you going to try and run for a leadership position or some sort of committee chairmanship if in a new Democratic-controlled House? Well, I currently serve on Steny Hoyer's senior whip team. I maintain that position. That's about a dozen people who advise Steny Hoyer. I'm on the policy and steering committee. That's about 30 people who advise the leader, Pelosi now, if she stays as leader. I'm the ranking member on the subcommittee on transportation. I will become the chairman of that committee, uh, most likely, and that, that's economic development, all public buildings, uh, GAO, FEMA. So that will be an interesting committee and can be relevant to, uh, to Nevada. Uh, just if you look at the number of people who are leaving, it's about 60. So my seniority will increase 60, even if nobody else wins or loses. So in a very short time, I think I'll be positioned to be in, in a pretty good place to help Nevada, help District 1, and, and fight things like Yucca Mountain from a position of strength rather than on the back row. Do you think you'd be in charge or in any committees that would have a chance to strip out Yucca funding from appropriations bills or basically a way to stop uh, Shemkiss from doing what he's been trying to do for the last two or four years? I don't think he's going to have nearly the clout that he has now, uh, if, especially if they're in the minority. And the Senate has never really had an appetite for this. They've more followed the Blue Ribbon Commission's recommendations, even without Harry Reid. Uh, but we've been pretty effective not being on the Appropriations Committee. I, I don't want to change committees. Uh, transportation infrastructure is very important for Nevada. I mean, you know, Las Vegas, we, we don't make anything here except dreams come true, which I say. We have to import everything, so transportation is critical, and I have built up some seniority there. I'm also on the Foreign Affairs Committee, which I personally like. So much is happening internationally, and because we are an international city, both in terms of our residents and our visitors, that's a key place for me to be. So I won't move, but I have been talking a good bit with uh, Pallone, who chairs the Commerce Committee. That's the committee that the bill goes through. And he is not a supporter of Yucca Mountain, and neither are some of the people in California who voted for the Shimkus bill, but they want to see some movement towards interim storage. So I think what we do instead of playing defense is go on the offense, 
come with an interim storage bill and then get some people doing something positive that gets the attention or the weight off of the need for Yucca Mountain. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of funding that has to be done for Yucca Mountain right. to be completed as it um, is supposed to be. One of Dean Howard's sort of selling points in his candidacy for Senate is that he's the senior senator, mm -hmm. he has it in good with McConnell, and he can stop Yucca funding getting to the floor. Now, there's a lot of campaign rhetoric, right. um, but if Heller loses, we're going to have two first-term senators in Nevada. Um, will we have, I guess, the, uh, the the ability and power as a small state to try and stop that if that is what the majority of states and the majority of Congress want to happen if Heller does lose in November? Well, that's true. Uh, I mean, I, right now, I think it's not moving well, for two reasons. One is Heller has a tough race, and they don't want to see that hurt him. But second, I go back to the point I made earlier. The Senate is not that inclined to do this. They have followed the Blue Ribbon Commission. They're more looking at consent-based decision-making. They're not ramming and jamming over there. They're not going to probably pick it up. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes it helps to have members of both parties in positions, and it certainly helps to have people in seniority in positions to fight things like how successful Senator Reid was. Uh, do you think it would help the party if Nancy Pelosi stepped down or moved from her leadership role? Well, that's a big debate going on right now, I can tell you. And uh, a lot of people think it's time for new blood. Uh, a lot of people think she has, if she takes the majority, she will get the credit for it and she will hold on to that leadership. She says she's not going away. You just saw the recent Time magazine cover uh, about her leadership. This is what I think will happen. If it's very close, it will be a fight. If we don't take the majority, she'll be gone. If we do take the majority in a large way, I think she will stay. She's got uh, uh, many women support her. She's got the California delegation. She's already meeting with the people who are getting elected, like Ocasio, to see what they want. She's raised an awful lot of money. And even more importantly than all of those things is, I don't see anybody else who can get enough votes to throw her out. You know, maybe they don't want her, but no, there's no heir apparent. Joe Crowley's gone. There's nobody else who says, well, I can get 218 votes to overthrow her. And so if we win big, I suspect she'll stay there. Do you have a personal opinion on whether or not she should go? You have a, a I, I haven't committed one way or the other. I've always supported her in the past. I think she's done a good job, but I'm always open to see what's happening. I think there'll be some new leadership changes within the caucus now that Joe Crowley's gone, and you already see Barbara Lee and uh, Linda Sanchez maneuvering for that. You've got some very ambitious young people who came in a couple of classes behind me, Eric Swalwell, Sherry Bustos. Uh, I'm not sure they're ready. He's ready to be on MSNBC a lot, though, isn't yes. Swalwell? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess so we're not going to get you on this uh, podcast thanking Dean Heller for killing Yucca Mountain, because I understand <laughs> he killed Yucca Mountain. Well, I appreciate that, and I work with him on that, but <laughs> it's a group effort. Uh, Let's talk more uh, about the issue that's roiling Washington now, and I know it's mostly in the Senate focus, but as I mentioned before, you're a student of history. You remember, uh, and I'm referring to Kavanaugh and, and, and the professor who's now come out and, and made an accusation, and there's questions even as we're recording this uh, on Monday about whether the vote will, will, will be held or not. Uh, you and I were around for, for Anita Hill. We, we, we watched that. Mm -hmm. It's a very different environment now, yeah. uh, a congresswoman with the backdrop of 
of the of the Me Too uh, movement. Uh, what, what is your take on all this? And does, does is it going to make just things worse for Washington? Because you know it's going to be a spectacle. What's about to happen? Either way, right? I think that is right. Uh, God, John, I I think that you're starting to see people now say, well, this lady deserves to be heard, and I think she will be. Uh, even Republicans are saying that. A letter went out this morning from the Democratic, I mean, from the Women's Caucus, from the Democrats in the House, to say they should postpone the hearing, uh, postpone the vote, and and have more hearings. Signed that? Yeah. Okay. I'm one of the women who signed on to that, uh, and I think she should be heard. Now, uh, whether it will make a difference in this vote or not, I don't know. I doubt it because the, they're already running another million dollars worth of ads in favor of Kavanaugh. The debate is not whether he did it, but whether it matters. You know, he's, he's saying he didn't do it. Other people are saying it was in high school. It doesn't matter. Some people are saying you can't trust the woman. That's why she should be heard. I think you, you have to hear her, uh, but whether it will stop them from confirming him or not, I, I'd be surprised. If it, if it gets the two women senators from Maine and Alaska to change their mind, that's the, that's the hope. But you're right, look at all the evidence against Clarence Thomas, and that didn't make any difference. In fact, it made everybody look bad. And already some of these, the hearings have been, you know, I am Spartacus moments, you know. I guess what I'm wondering is, is listen, you, you, you've um, uh, uh, achieved a lot a lot as a woman in politics. You faced your own, uh, you know, I'm sure you faced sexism yourself. I'm sure there's probably been pundits out there who've declared your career dead. Not, not, not that I can think of any of them right now. But, but, I, but I guess what, 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 I'm, what I'm wondering about, Congresswoman, is do you see attitudes changing? I mean, um, what, what would you say if someone said to you, this is true about Kavanaugh, but it happened in high school, he was blackout drunk, he didn't know what he was doing. What would your reaction be to that? Not just as, a, as, a, as an elected official, but as a woman. Well, I, I think you have to draw the line. I, you know, I think that's enough to say he doesn't belong on the Supreme Court. It's not like we're saying, can he get a job flipping burger somewhere? This is the highest court of the land. And, and yeah, you should be on a pedestal. And yes, you should meet the highest standard. So I would find that unacceptable. I wouldn't want him working in my office. Congresswoman, uh, a few months ago, a few of my colleagues reached out to your office about a story they were working on with Mark Menendo, who was an assemblyman when you were in the state Senate, about some incident that uh, may have happened with one of your staffers during that time in the legislature. And uh, Mr. Menendo, I don't want to get into the details because a lot of the stuff has been published on the record, but um, given your role in the legislature and, and knowing what we know now and what we knew then about uh, former assemblyman, former Senator Menendo's behavior, do you feel like you did enough? to, uh, I guess, protect young women? And do you have any regrets about uh, your time in the legislature in, in that specific regard? I don't. I, I, you know, I've always felt that young women could come to me and talk to me. I have talked to other people besides Mark Menendo about their behavior towards interns. You probably know who I mean, John. Uh, I, and I don't think that there was ever a time that anybody felt like they were afraid to talk to me about it or that I would do something about it or I would speak to the person involved in it. And I, that it's still our policy in our office. Uh, it's a zero tolerance policy. And I said that when we recently had some accusations against one of my colleagues in the delegation. I wanted to ask you about that, too. Uh, Congressman Keown was on Ray Hager's show, I, I think, last week, and he said he's interested in running for other offices okay. once he does retire. Do you think he needs to apologize? Do you think he um, 
I, I guess I'm just curious what you make of that, given he hasn't apologized or really addressed uh, the multiple allegations of, of sexual misconduct that have been levied against him. Well, I guess that investigation is still ongoing. Usually when somebody decides not to run again, then that kind, they kind of quit worrying too much about it. But I think if he does decide to run again, that will all come back out. And I suspect there may be other women who will be more willing to tell their stories if it does. Mm -hmm. I guess th there is a larger question, right, of like what happens with men who are the subject of, of Me Too movements? What's the proper amount of like repentance they have to go to? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's varying levels of people who have apologized. Mr. Kewen hasn't apologized. Does, does he have to do anything in your eyes to be, uh, I guess, qualified for public office? Or, or would you support him if he ran for another office as a Democrat? Well, I don't know that apologizing is what you have to do. I mean, sometimes it's easy just to apologize and move on. Uh, I, I think that it's probably a, a bigger issue than that. I, I don't know all the details of uh, Ruben's situation, except from what some young women told me. But uh, I just think he has to defend his actions and uh, maybe show that he's improved and won't do that again. And I don't know that he's had enough time to do that, or maybe he has, he said it wasn't true. Uh, it's never really been fleshed out in, in any kind of hearings other than just in the press. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, you just said, and maybe I misunderstood this, you said, other than what some young women have told you, have you heard stories outside of what have been published by the Nevada Independent and BuzzFeed about his behavior? I have. You have. From, from 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 people in Washington or from people in Nevada? Nevada. And and what did you do about that? Did you speak to Ruben Kewen about that? Uh, no, I didn't speak to Ruben about it. Uh, but I've spoken to the young women about it and encouraged them to do you know what they thought was right and come forward. And I know you've talked to some of them too, John. You found them to be credible. Oh, no question. You know, the, the, one of the things that comes out of Riley's line of questioning here, and you mentioned the House Ethics Committee, and what, uh, uh, and Riley can correct me if I'm wrong, he's very good at that. Uh, if what, what I understand he said on Ray Hager's show is basically if he's cleared by the House Ethics Committee, I think he sees that as a green light uh, to run again. But really, should that be the standard, Congressman? I mean, these women who we, we talk to and, and who BuzzFeed, they still feel aggrieved by this behavior. They don't, they don't want an ethics committee finding. Finding, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what they do want, you know. Uh, but remember, ethics, what's ethical and what's legal are two different things. Uh, and so sometimes an ethics committee will find your behavior may not be illegal because there's no law on the books, but that doesn't mean it's uneth not unethical, you know. What's unethical is what you learn in Sunday school or what you don't want to see on the front page of the paper in big print or what you know is morally wrong, and that may not be what's legal. So that those two things get very confused and complicated. Do you think that all of this has changed in, 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 in the years that you've been in elective office and the way that people look at these kinds oh, of things? no question. In, no in what way? Well, gosh, you've been around Carson City for a long time, John. Uh, you know, I, if you recall the first time that I ran, one of the people who was in the uh, Senate at the time was quoted in the paper saying, well, the good old boys aren't going to like this. You know, just for the fact that I was running in the seat that was had been held by a man. 
And then I recall at one time when uh, I was trying to maybe even be leader or something, one of the members of the Senate reached over and patted me on the knee and said, just let the big boys handle this. You know, then so you have to become one of the good old boys yourself to uh, make it work. But uh, the standards change and times change and sometimes things swing to extremes of the pendulum and have to kind of work their way back to some uh, sense of reality. I mean, uh, I have been around almost for your entire career in, in Carson City, and, and, and I, I covered my first session 30 years ago, and it is an incredibly sexist environment uh, up there. You mentioned the good old boys. Uh, and I'm wondering, but I'm, the standard for you <clears throat> to be successful and the reputation that you got up there was, you mentioned you had to become one of the good old boys. You, you were as tough as any of them, maybe even tougher than some of them, that if, if you were to do you wrong, it was there were, there were going to be consequences. And I'm not saying this to flatter you. I'm really know. wondering. I'm really you would never flatter me, John. Well, <laughs> well, that's that's not actually true, but that's that's a different subject. But I guess what I'm wondering about, and I really think this is an interesting topic in this sense, is that whether attitudes will ever change in the sense that women who uh, were like you were and are, still are, uh, men are called tough. Women are called another word, right? right? Oh, no, uh, and, and but and that that is going to persist in society probably mm -hmm. for a while. Do you think that because of the revelations about uh, Mark Menendo and about Ruben Kiwin, that when we go back there and 2019 that that's going to change at all? I think you'll see it change. I mean, sometimes it takes a drastic movement. It, it, society changes a lot slower than laws change. I mean, look at desegregation and discrimination. You can change the law, but that doesn't mean you change people's hearts and minds. That, that takes a while. And I think this will take a while. But you got some, you got more women elected. That's one thing that will change it. You've got some younger people who are less tolerant of the old standards than some growing up in a different generation. You've got more women lobbyists around now than you had before, more professional women. It used to be a handful of women lobbyists, mostly a, a men's world. I think that will change the atmosphere too. So yeah, it'll take a while, but it, it will start. I believe it will. I'm going to go back to Riley in just a second, but I'm going to wrap up with where he began this, which is, do you think, do you look back, and you said no when, when he asked, do you, do you regret anything? Don't you think Democratic leaders generally uh, um, coddled or, or looked the other way with Mark Menendo for a long, long time? Uh, there was that one investigation uh, in the Assembly with, with, with when, during the Perkins-Buckley era, but it was an open secret. I've even looked back, Congresswoman, and said, you know, I had women tell me things, and they didn't really want me to pursue them, and I think maybe I, 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 I should have pursued them. Didn't that, wasn't that just allowed to go on for way too long? Well, maybe that would be a regret. It was in the assembly. It wasn't in the Senate. Right. I had enough problems dealing with the members of the but Senate. But you knew about it. But, you knew but about if it. maybe I should have intervened on the assembly side, but it just seemed like that was their problem. They needed to deal with it. I was dealing with it on our side. So maybe that I should have pushed it more like you, John. Um, I'm going to totally change the subject. Uh, there's a lot of ads being run by Republican candidates and groups that are focusing on all these supposedly horrible and evil things Democrats will do if they retake control of the House, starting with impeachment proceedings against the president. I I'm curious, what, what are maybe three or four things you think House Democrats should do like within the first f few days or the first week uh, if they do retake control of the House this November? 
Well, if we take the House and not the Senate, which is most likely, I think we'll be just playing defense. We'll be stopping some of the things that there is their agenda. So there's not a whole lot of new initiatives that we can push through. I think you will find a number of investigations, though, conducted by the House Democrats. Uh, I just mentioned that I will be chairing that infrastructure uh, subcommittee. That includes all government buildings, including the old post office, which is now the Trump Hotel. First thing I want to do is have them come in and tell us why they're not paying the rent. You know, these are kind of questions I think that the Democrats will do. I don't think they'll push impeachment because you got to get two thirds of the Senate. You know, it would kind of be a fool's errand. I voted against tabling the resolution to start investigation for impeachment because I think there's enough evidence out there. But I don't think you'll rush to impeach, certainly not without any Republicans on board and not before the Mueller uh, investigation is completed. I wanted to ask about that because I, I think you tried to uh, very specifically parse that a vote against against the tabling of the impeachment. Mm -hmm. It was not a vote in favor of impeachment. Mm -hmm. Has anything the president has done um, since then or anything that he's done that has been revealed since that vote convinced you that what he's done um, are impeachable offenses? Well, now, let's, let's go back to what I was saying before about the difference between legal and ethical. Impeachment is not a legal process. A lot of it is conducted in a similar fashion as a trial, but it is a political process. And if you look at impeachment, it doesn't say you have to do something illegal, it's that you're unfit to carry out the office. I think there are a lot of things that already show he's unfit to carry out the office. Now, it, have they proven collusion? Well, I think he proved collusion when he stood up on the stage and said, Russia, look, get the WikiLeaks, or, you know, remember, go after her emails. Um, but as far as get, having enough of a smoking gun to get people on board to vote for impeachment, there probably is not enough because the whole bar has moved of what is acceptable. It's like a new normal now. Nobody would have ever imagined a president could act the way he has and get away with it in previous uh, administrations. The, the president tweeted this weekend, um, he referred to the Mueller investigation as illegal. Um, if he does choose to fire Robert Mueller and try and end this uh, special investigation, does that change the equation at all for House Democrats and for yourself as to, to what should be done in terms of trying to remove him from office prior to the 2020 election? Well, it would probably change some minds of people who think you should. I think it would create a constitutional crisis. I don't know how many Republicans would get on board or find some excuse for it. That's the frustrating thing. You know, some of the people you think are really reasonable Republicans, nice people, they'll say to you in the elevator, oh, he's not my president. Oh, I disagree with him. Oh, I wish he wouldn't tweet. But they will go right to the floor. They will vote for his bills. They will approve his appointments. They will defend him on television and they empower him. So will it be enough for Republicans to get on board and have the votes? I don't know. It kind of depends on what this election shows, not just in terms of Democrats, Democrats getting elected, but how powerful Trump is in helping the Republicans who are in trouble. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, and I've heard this from other Democrats um, on the Hill, of there's Republicans who in the elevator will say he's crazy, he, you know, mm -hmm. he's totally out there, and then go on the floor and vote for all of his bills. Right. Is Dean Heller one of those Republicans? Well, I'm not close to Dean Heller, so I can't really speak to that. And he's voting over on the Senate side. I know known Dean since he was in the Assembly, and he was always a pretty moderate guy. Uh, even Harry Reid supported him at one point. Uh, now, like many Republicans, they are afraid that somebody's going to run to their right, and so to protect the base, they're 
supporters of the president. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just curious because I was thinking this morning that about a year ago I was trying to chase you around and figure out if you were going to run for his Senate seat or not. Yeah. Um, did you have any regrets about not throwing your hat in the ring and trying to run for that seat? Every day. Every day I regret it. Uh, but I'm like Joe Biden, you know, he regrets not running for president, but he knows it was the right decision. And I, I feel the same way. Why do you feel it was the right decision? Well, a number of reasons. Um, one is the seniority that I mentioned earlier. I'm getting a little too old, John. We've been around a long time to start over as a freshman, and I'll be in a position of uh, strength to help the district, and I think that that's, uh, that will be important. I, I have the best district in the world. I mean, look at everything that's happening right here in District 1, from the Knights to the Raiders to the university to the you know downtown development. It's all right here. Everywhere I go in the world, people know Las Vegas, and so I... Uh, I, I love representing this area. And, you know, I'm at the point where uh, if I had to spend every minute on the phone raising money, traveling around the state, trying to campaign right now, I wouldn't be able to enjoy life to, to the extent that I can for travel and for uh, being home and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And while this question is not designed to try and get you to beat up on members of your own party, uh, <laughs> you know, Jackie Rosen has been around for a cup of coffee in Nevada politics. You've been involved in the legislature um, since longer than Jacob and I have been alive oh, um, <laughs> in, in the political world. Is there anything she's doing that you think you could have done better or ways that she could have run her campaign more effectively, uh, given the importance of this seat nationally? Uh, well, we're very different people. And we worked on very different things, so I can't second-guess her campaign. When you say that you regret it every day, do you regret it just because of, of, of you love the hurly-burly and you would have loved to have been in the race and you would have loved to run against Dean Heller? Is that what you mean, or do you mean something else? No, I mean that. Uh, and, and, you know, it would be nice to have the title senator by your name. But in reality, that's just ego speaking. That's not my brain speaking. Because it'd still be the same job, same pay, same commute, uh, just a different title and with less power. So that's really not a rational decision. You know, I don't like this analogy because I don't think it's it's one-to-one -one based on what Riley was saying. But a lot of Republicans do say Trump is a horrible human being. He's, he's obviously a horrible human being, right? Uh, but you know what? We're still getting things done because we have a Republican president things they believe in, right. uh, the, 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 the tax cuts, uh, regulatory reform, those kinds of things. So uh, they're, pro they're probably, probably really didn't collude with Russia, maybe did, maybe didn't. But forget about that, he's getting stuff done. A lot of the same things were said, and again, I don't think this is a completely apt analogy, during the Clinton impeachment, that he, was, that he treated her horribly, that he was terrible towards women. But look at all the stuff that we as Democrats got done. Isn't there a certain amount of hypocrisy there? You mean for my criticism of Trump? Well, I'm not going to defend Bill Clinton's womanizing. Uh, certainly the, some of the policies that Bill Clinton pushed, I supported. Uh, but uh, right now, a lot of the things that are happening that are getting done, the president's taking credit for that really started under the Obama administration, especially if you talk about the economy. I mean, the job creation and bringing down the unemployment and, you know, surviving their recession and the housing market coming back. We see that right here in Las Vegas. Uh, that started under Obama. So Trump is getting credit for the economy, but uh, I don't know what he's really done to 
make that happen. Now, as far as the deregulation, he has certainly rolled back regulations, and people in big corporations love that, but it's not good for the planet, and it's not good for my constituents. The regulations that he's rolled back are environmental, uh, you know, oil and gas and clean air and clean water and public lands. I mean, you name it, they've gone after it. Uh, and consumer protections, you know, rolling back all the Dodd-Frank things. So those are, maybe things are getting done for a very small handful of people, uh, but not for the general population. I guess I'm wondering more about just as a, as a, as a, as a political scientist, one of the oldest things that's said in, in politics is character matters, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm wondering if it matters less now than ever before. You have some people even speaking up. Like, I have no idea, and I, I, I'm going to get heat for saying this, I have no idea why Michael Avenatti suddenly thinks that he can run for president because he represented uh, a porn star and got on cable TV all, all, all the time. There are plenty of people who have been vetted, who have, who have spent their years toiling, have learned issues, who might want to run for president in, in, in 2020. Uh, it distresses me as an observer. It probably distresses you as well. But is that the way that we're going? Is, how do you pull back from that, I guess? The celebrity culture the you know, that the, the now seems to have overtaken politics. Oh, I think that's right. And after Donald Trump, any, anything goes. I can do that. Hey, anybody says I can be president if he can be president. But uh, you're right. And look at all the, all the people who are wanting to be president. They fit those celebrity kind of descriptions as opposed to re being real substantive. And it is, uh, it is frustrating, but I go to this point, John, and you've been involved in this, about the number of debates. When I ran for governor, I think we had six debates all over the state, all televised. One, I debated myself because my opponent didn't show up because he was off with the whatever. Uh, and when I ran against Joe Heck, it was like five debates. Now you are going to have a governor's race with maybe one debate. A con congressional races where they say, well, we, don't, we just don't want to do it, so there aren't going to be any debates. People don't care or don't know or something about issues or what difference it makes. They just see the TV ad or just see the personality or just see the looks of the person. And that's what uh, is determining who gets elected so many times. What's going on in our culture that's causing that, though? Well, I, I don't know a lot of it. I guess you could say some of it started with TV, now it's instant gratification, it's the, uh, I don't know, so can you blame it on social media? Everything else is blamed on social media. The quick bites, people don't read anymore. I mean, you're in the news business and we're trying to do in-depth studies, you know how hard that is. That's one of the things that when I do not miss about teaching. People don't read, so they can't write. They write in text, you know, I heart you, as opposed to, you know, a regular sentence. And if anybody asked them what a semicolon was, they'd be lost. So, yeah, I share your frustration. Have you met with any of the potential 2020 presidential candidates? There, no, there's a whole laundry list of names yeah, out there. Probably half, at least half, a lot of them. Uh -huh. yeah. I, I, you were at the event with uh, Sisolak and, and Michael uh -huh. Bloomberg this weekend. As we were saying before, he's another potential 2020-er. Yeah. Um, uh, who do you think is, is the Democrats' best chance at this point? In I don't know. I, I mean, I love Joe Biden, but I don't know if he's going to do it, and he maybe decide he's too old. But uh, they'll be coming through here. I mean, they already have. Elizabeth Warren's already been here. Cory Booker's mother lives here. Kamala Harris is close by. Avenatti um, been here. I'm sure He's he will here. be. Uh, Bloomberg is here. Uh, I think uh, Mallory is coming back from Maryland. Uh, 
is uh, scheduled to be back here. They'll all be coming back trying to help the governor, trying to help the members of Congress all to kind of get a little foothold here because they know it won't be long before the caucuses start and Nevada's still going to be an early caucus. So we'll, we matter. Mm-hmm. Um, you and John just had this very uh, long conversation about um, sort of the celebrity culture, celebrity candidates. Uh, we talked about Michael Avenatti. Can you see yourself supporting, like, if a celebrity does jump in the, the Democratic race for president in 2020, and we have, like, Oprah as a nominee against Trump, can you see yourself supporting someone like that against uh, Trump? Well, I, I, the worst Democrat would be better than Trump, uh, so I, I guess I could, I could, but that wouldn't be my ideal choice for somebody to be president. I'm kind of old-fashioned. We have, we have a few more minutes. I'm going to ask a few more questions. I alluded to this earlier. Um, obviously, pot legalization has mm-hmm. become a big deal. It's now legal in Nevada. There's been battles over money here already, and there's going to be in the legislature again. Uh, you've, you've been, you've been uh, at the forefront in, in, in Washington about not having a pot be a Schedule I drug anymore. Is, is pot legalization, is, is it something that can't be stopped, but we just don't see it now across the country, or is it still going to be just very slowly state by state? Well, I think that you're reaching a tipping point because so many states are doing it. I mean, it's on the ballot all across the country, and over half the states now have some form of legalized marijuana and more doing it for recreational purposes than just medical. So that means that more members of Congress will feel pressure from back home to move this. Right now, two big obstacles are Sessions, Secretary of uh, um, Attorney General, and Sessions, the chairman of the Rules Committee. Now, he's got a tough race in Texas, so he may not be back and he may not be chair if the Democrats take the majority. But uh, you have to make the argument in several different ways, depending on who you're talking to. And they're all kind of bills. There's bills about taxes for small businesses, bills about the VA, bills about just making it not illegal uh, federally if it's legal at the state level. Um, But you can either make a state's rights argument, which will appeal to some Republicans. You can make the businessman's argument, which appeals to some Republicans. You can make the criminal justice argument, which may appeal to some liberal Democrats. Or you can make the Tick Sagerbloom argument, hey, we're just a bunch of old hippies who want to get stoned, and that (laughs) appeals to some people. So, you know, you kind of pick your arguments. But we have made a little progress, two steps forward, one step back. But I I think you'll see some kind of uh, action maybe in the next Congress. Riley, you got anything else? Yes. Um, The Republican tax bill was opposed by every Democrat in the Senate and in the House. Um, One of the lines being used by Republican candidates and groups is that they want to repeal the tax cut. if Democrats take control of the House and the Senate, could you see yourself voting for a bill that repeals that entire tax bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? Would you want to keep parts of it in place, like the the cuts to tax um, brackets that lower the taxable amount for middle class families, the ones that expire in 10 years? Or do you think the whole thing should be repealed? Well, we fought to get some things in there, even though I voted against it, like the provision that allowed the uh, uh, convention center and the stadium to continue to get the cut that they, that the uh, deduction that they needed. Also, but there are some things in there that are really bad, like the lowering of the low income housing credit, so that creates building of low income housing. 
uh, the fact that the corporate taxes are permanent and the individual taxes are not. Now they're talking about coming in and making those permanent, create another $2 trillion deficit. So I, w I don't know. I wouldn't just sweep it out across the board, but I would certainly go back and look at some of those, including the corporate tax rate and some of the inheritance tax rates. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's going to be a priority for Democrats if they take back control, or is the, the many other things on their laundry list to get done going to take precedence over trying to deal with that? Well, I think there'll be some pressure to look at that structure again, but uh, it depends, like I said, on what the, what the Senate looks like mm -hmm. and what the chances are. I think if the Democrats are smart, they won't bite off more than they can chew. They need to uh, pick their battles, see what they can win, see what they can deliver, because you're going to be going into 2020, and we want to be sure that you got something to run on. That's the problem that the Republicans have this time. They thought they were going to run on the tax bill, and it hadn't turned out that great. And so they haven't been able to make that much of an argument. So we need to be sure we can do some deliverables. Mm -hmm. uh, about a month ago, Nancy Pelosi said in an interview she wants to reinstate the, the PAYGO rule or take it back from being suspended. Um, and this has been, I think, criticized by some people on the left who said this would sort of slow down a lot of the big policy ideas um, that Democrats have. Obviously, there's not a good chance President Donald Trump signs a Medicare for all bill um, in any of our lifetimes. But did, did you agree with the, the um, Ms. Pelosi's decision in that? Do you think the PAYGO rule should be reinstated? Well, I don't have any problem with the PAYGO rule because that's the way I operated for 20 years at the state legislature. You know, you had to have a balanced budget so you couldn't put in something that you didn't have the money to pay for. So it doesn't really affect me that much. It makes it a little harder. You got to find a source of revenue for some kind of program that you want to create. I think a better thing to look at is put back in place earmarks. Um, I think earmarks, we need earmarks. I mean, how's Nevada going to get anything if you have to depend on some bureaucrat in some office somewhere that doesn't know anything about Nevada? Wouldn't it be better if somebody from Nevada was advocating for it? Now, you can make them transparent. You can report them. You can have them just go for things like public entities, not bridges to nowhere that benefit private companies. But I think that would be an improvement. If you're going to have pay go, let's also have earmarks. Mm -hmm. All right, let's wrap this up. I want, I, I'm going to ask you a question I've never asked you before, but it, it seems relevant, uh, Congresswoman, uh -oh. at, 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 at the end here. Uh, um, uh, and for those for those of you who can't see Dina Titus's face now, she's wondering, what could John Ralston, who I've known for 30 years, possibly ask? And, and I, I, it comes up because of the questions about seniority and dysfunction in Washington. How much longer do you want to do this? Oh, well, that is a good question. I'm not ready to retire yet. Uh, that commute is as long as five-hour flight, and I come home almost every weekend because if Congress isn't doing much back there, I want to be sure I'm doing a lot here uh, in the district. But uh, as long as I, I feel like I'm making a difference, I'm going to stay there and keep fighting. Yeah, I mean, you, you seem like you have the same energy since the first time I ever met you. I hope so. I, I, and, and so your health seems fine. So you just, you, you, you haven't even thought about it. Retiring, I mean. I know. Not at all. I'll let you know, John. All right. Right, right here on Indie <laughs> all right. Matters. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Congresswoman. Really sure. appreciate it. <laughs>